Okay, welcome to 1972. I'm Justin Cox and Ryan Page. How's it going? I'm happy to be on the side of an unquestioned masterpiece. I mean, you are too, but uh, we'll get to that. <laughs> Am I? Well, maybe there's a few questions. <laughs> <laughs> what are what are our uh, what are the masterpieces this year? The genius John Lennon and Yoko Ono put out an album called Sometime in New York. The Rolling Stones released little-known album called Exile on Main Street. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. You are representing that album. I'm on the stone side, the right side of history in 1972. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy. Like the Beatles break up in 70. They put out, they all put out solo albums that year. And now this is the first time where it's just one of them doing something. And it's, uh, yeah, I guess here, here's a good place to start. Like as recently as 1969, we were basically saying this is the closest these two bands have ever been. I think it was Abbey Road and Let It Bleed. This year, I'm gonna make my I'm gonna do my little like duty to like very quickly defend um, "Sometime in New York City" by John Lennon and Yoko Ono. But this is unquestionably the farthest they are apart from each other, right? Probably since the early '60s and the Beatles being on the other side of that. Yes, this is. Um, I, you know, I talked to our guest this week, Rob Mitchum, and Rob is a very accomplished, beloved music journalist, and he was not familiar with the album Sometime in New York. So that's really all I need to say about this record. Um, it not only is it not beloved, is it not well regarded. Um, it's literally forgotten. Yeah, I I didn't I hadn't heard of it either and honestly the reason I drafted it in this in this draft or actually you drafted Exile but I had no plans of drafting Exile because I knew it was your favorite Rolling Stones album so it was like a bullet I was happy to take for the project. And today this week I get to take it. You you're taking it on the chin and that's fine. Um if if this is my favorite Rolling Stones album then I'm in good company because our guest Mark Richardson labeled it as his favorite Rolling Stones album. Uh, Rob also had it as his favorite Rolling Stones album. This is the Cool Guys Rolling Stones album. This is the Stones fans album. If you consider yourself a, a big Stones fan and you want to be cool to other people, you absolutely have to have Exile on Main Street as your favorite Stones record. It is. It's, it is the cool person one. I think what you said last week that was like, if you were trying to get someone new into the Rolling Stones and, and handed them this one, you're doing them a disservice. You got you to gotta work your way to up to this one. Exile on Main Street, definitely. I'm just going to walk this back a little bit. It could be my favorite Stones album, but if this is my favorite Stones album, Sticky Fingers is right there with it. And it's, it's an interesting conversation to put those two because they almost represent two different sides of the Stones, almost like Freudian id versus ego or something like that they're very different and i like them both for different reasons but sticky fingers is it's not like this is a runaway no no way i mean i think they're two very good versions of a similar period i mean it's it's i agree with what you say that they are very different in like one feels extremely like curated and edited down and one of them is just a release of everything but it's kind of nuts because these things were written and recorded sometimes in the same sessions like they're cut from the same moment of this band and and there is sound like sonic stuff that sounds similar between the two of them even while the 
product as a whole, they just feel like different things. Yeah. And in reading about Exile and Main Street, it really struck me, or I really thought it was interesting that the thing that people really seem to like about it, um, and that I like about it, is that um, it really flows. It really, you know, all the songs, even if they're slightly different styles or whatever, they all feel like they fit together. They they fit like they, they feel like this album as a whole has an identity, um, which is crazy because it really was recorded in two very different contexts, which is you have Keith Richards and, and him sort of leading the way in France. And then you flip it over and have these sessions in Los Angeles that are more led by Mick. And so how you somehow get from these two very different contexts with two different leaders who are pretty clear at this time that they want different things to marry together and make such a cohesive whole. Like I feel, I don't want to say we're lucky, but some, something happened that, that is kind of magical with that. Yeah. That could be a recipe for a total mess, but instead it's instead, honestly, I think part of why this is the like stones fans, like, like favorite album, it's the cool person's favorite album. Like this album has kind of the most lore and story to it uh, than any Rolling Stones album. I mean, they're out there. They are exiled from their country for like avoiding their taxes. There's so much drugs. The, the lead singer is not in the main place where the album's being recorded in the basement of like a place that the guitarist is renting. Like that's that all that stuff is so kind of off center from the recording studio experiences most bands use and that these bands have used leading up to this period. It's just a cool story. I hear you talk when I'm on the street. It's kind of funny too that people really, they really are invested in this narrative of like the basement of this villa in France that Keith Richards had rented as part of the story of this album. But it certainly doesn't... Nothing about it screams French villa to me from like a musical point of view. If no one told you that, would you ever know that that was part of the story? No, not even close. I mean, my, I could see them being there doing a lot of drugs, staying up late, recording this music in this place. And, and really that's like, you're sure you're in the South of France, but you're not necessarily, you don't have to engage with the South of France and like have some French experience to be doing that. That's just the place you are to be outside your country. Yeah, totally. Well, okay. So I want to hear, I want to hear your, your, you sounded like you were gearing up for some arguments for um, some time in New York and you're going to make the case for that album. I would love, I'd love to hear your case. <laughs> uh, I'm going to ask you a question and um, what you say is going to reflect heavily on your character. Is Yoko Ono ahead of her time or bad? Those are my only two options. <laughs> I'm trying to lock and load a question for you. I'm, I'm trying okay. To well, I mean, given the, I definitely don't ahead of her time implies that people eventually embraced her music and, or were influenced by her. And I've done enough reading at this point to know that there are some people that claim to have been influenced by Yoko Ono or her musical stylings or her avant-garde work. Um, none of those people seem to have any sort of presence in the popular consciousness of music. So I can't say that she was ahead of her time. If, if she was, she's so far ahead of her time that she, <laughs> her time hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the extent of what I'm going to try and do here. I thought this album was awful and actively difficult to listen to 
what I'll say, like when you said, was she an influence on people musically or anything like that? She was an influence in a, there are people who admire her as like an avant-garde artist who is going to do things to cut against. um, She's like the opposite of a sellout in terms of what she's doing. It's she's trying to make you uncomfortable and annoyed that means mission successful yeah that means something in the culture but when you're like okay never heard of this album sometime in new york city it's up against exile on main street it's the only beatles one i gotta give it a good amount of time i haven't felt more tense and uncomfortable and annoyed in this whole entire project i mean not even close not even ringo's um lounge album it was so bad i couldn't stand it i I mean there's a lot of lounginess in this album as well yeah, that's so. So you start off with a song called "Woman Is the N Word of the World." Like, okay, what are we gonna do here? Like, you know what kind of headspace John Lennon's in, and so then you get this song. I, okay, I see what point you're trying to make, but just so clumsy and bad way to do it. And to say "woman is the N word of the world" and then have to say the words "think about it" after it each time you <laughs> sing it, like you don't do that. You don't like, what is that? And then basically the backing band, which is some band in New York that they hooked up with that plays all over this album, unfortunately. I mean, I'm, they're talented mm-hmm. in their own way, but it basically sounds like like the host is walking out on Saturday Night Live, just like saxophones <laughs> blazing. It was so ridiculous. I will say this about maybe my expectations were just that low i'd say it was better than i was expecting it wasn't for me it was even worse than your let me see my notes here because it's like the kind of thing where with plastic ono band and imagine i could be like oh these songs stick with me and i can just reference them in conversation but with with this one i feel like i have to like look to my notes because i was i was like they they bounced right off of me like i didn't want the songs to stay with me and so i wrote sunday bloody sunday i just wrote jesus christ next to that like this is (laughs) john sinclair when you get to the like got to got to got to got to got to got to i said i wanted to kick my stereo over and then we're all water it says, if you're not miserable by this point, this this song gets the job done. I just got progressively irritated. And then you flip it over. And so then you take it, the cover is awful. It's all these like newspaper. It's like a, a fake looking newspaper with all the songs and lyrics and some pictures and just nothing good about it. I will say that I think both album covers are bad this year, but weirdly they they reflect the material like the 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 Lennon one is basically like bad and that it's just awful tacky and annoying the Rolling Stones one is like chaotic but okay can we talk about this a little like I I I know we're in the throes of sometime in New York I asked this question to Rob Mitchum and he was a big fan of the album cover I've always thought it was like kind of forgettable and just like I don't know, boring. Like for for an album that's so legendary, when we we waxed poetic last week about how unforgettable Sticky Fingers is, I've always thought Exile deserved a better, more striking. I feel like I've seen some version of this record cover like dozens of times. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that too, I guess where I go with that is that it's not a good, cool looking album cover like on its own to me but I in this 
like double album where they kind of like all the little filler groove songs are also in there where sticky fingers is like here's the 10 this is what you get this album covers perfect like something about what they made with exile on main street it really does feel reflected in that and i know Mick jagger says like that's this album was meant to kind of represent this there's sort of a little bit of a chaos to it and i don't know but like the lack of like a focal point it's just kind of grayscale set of images and i mean some of those images are interesting but together you just kind of have nothing to to really look at and that's fair i've just always found it wanting and like if i imagine the album in my head like i can see the vague outline of the cover but nothing about it like i just see like a grid almost in my brain if that makes sense what do you see when you when you put sticky fingers in your brain (laughs) (laughs) I don't even, uh, uh, I'm not allowed to share those thoughts on podcasts. Okay. So, um, uh, but going back to sometime in New York, last episode, which was last year, which we recorded last week, I made this whole case about John Lennon being a massive hypocrite for building up Yoko Ono and then releasing two albums immediately post Beatles with no Yoko Ono on her. And my whole point that I was going to make was, put it like go back to being a hypocrite like we don't want this like i'm sorry i asked for this and i actually think on the first side of the record as annoying as some of those songs are that there is something to yoko's voice but then when you go through the rest of the album and I just, what is avant-garde about just screaming your lungs out? There's nothing interesting in that vocal performances. I, I think that it is deliberately designed to make you uncomfortable and that's the, that's its purpose. And I think that a lot of people who like, like, like if you listen to like, like say you took your mom to go see like a grindcore band, like just intense, loud, distorted, crazy music that you can't detect a melody and, and it's just all like, a barrage of sound i think a person would hear that and just be like how could anybody possibly find this pleasant or enjoyable like i literally cannot comprehend how but it does something for someone i would say that in in a lot of that it's like adrenaline and energy which i can't say for shrieking yoko ono in in this stuff but yeah the second side of the album which the second side of the album is literally just her in the background making the sound you're going to hear right now we talked a lot about this like a lot of the issue with the rolling stones early on was like they're making these amazing songs but they're just amazing songs on a record that is essentially a collection of songs and some of them are amazing whereas the beatles kind of pretty quickly became like this album is like this this album is like this they felt like a a collective piece this album right here sometime in new york city is like it flies in the face of anything cohesive like you're gonna flip the record and get like five or six songs that are live one of them that's 16 minutes long and like when you hear yoko ono making that sound at the beginning of a song that you see is 16 minutes long and you keep skipping ahead in it and realize like oh this is still happening you set it against the backdrop of some kind of rock rock bluesy band with a bunch of saxophone 
it's just a mess. Yeah, that, it's just annoying. Making people uncomfortable is one of the easiest things in the world. Like if that's the argument for someone's avant-garde art, like, well, I'm making people uncomfortable. That's so easy. It's no big accomplishment to make people uncomfortable, especially audibly, like just record some nonsense. But the fact that, okay, some of this stuff is supposed to be avant-garde music and it's played against the most milquetoast session musician-y lounge exactly. stuff that's where it really like you just throw this in the dumpster and it's like okay I, I don't even think I remembered any of these songs five minutes after I listened to them yeah and I actively didn't want to um <laughs> and and yeah I don't know I think as, as you just said I think we should throw it in the dumpster and move on to the album that matters this month I'm not I'm not going to try and build a case for this I, I'll leave it on a positive note but the positive note even has a negative note on it there's a Yoko Ono lyric and I actually Googled it and saw that like people have put this on t-shirts and stuff like that, or like quote websites for Yoko Ono, which is, which tells you there's some Yoko there's, I mean, there are plenty of Yoko Ono lovers out there. Contrarians. Um, <laughs> uh, a mirror becomes a razor when it's broken. I like that lyric. Mirror becomes a razor when it's broken. Look in the mirror and see your shattered face. I think that's a cool lyric. Um, independent of what meaning you get out of it or anything it sounds cool but it also is followed up with a stick becomes a flute when it's loved and i don't like that lyric yeah let me i'm gonna put one more negative in there and then i'll also end it on a positive note which is i want to say about the screaming the screeching thing whatever you want to call that it's like that could that could be a flavor or some kind of like artistic statement but the problem is there's no variation to it like she just throws it in to everything there's a famous video on youtube of her doing that while chuck berry is playing like that's just that's your only move and that's not an interesting that's not interesting art it's not interest like there's no variation to it there's no subtlety you know you can tell on that 16 minute song that she's it's supposed to be some kind of audio piece it's just not interesting. There's no, there's no dynamic to it whatsoever. That's and a good point. That is. I, I would love to actually read a full defense of why that move of hers, which you're right. It's it. She does it a lot. I'm, I'm here to hear a defense of why that's cool, interesting, additive, anything, because it isn't. Yeah. And I'm t- I got to be honest that anyone who... I've tried to read in any kind of defense of Yoko Ono, again, has appeared to my intellect as being either aggressively contrarian or just so esoteric as to like not be taken seriously. I I will say, okay, so here's a good final one. The song Well, which is like John announces at the beginning, he like talks and says like, this is a cool old song we used to record at the cabin in Liverpool. And uh, it's like, man, this feels good. This feels like after that, after that album, it feels like, oh man, this is gonna, this is nice, and it is a good song. It's a cool, just feeling a little more down the middle song. But then Yoko just does that move, and then the song Jam Rag has like this cool riffing right in the middle of it, and then Yoko's just doing that in the background. And maybe that's the thread that binds the whole entire album. And that's at at some point, it's just like, why? Yeah, well, and Frank Zappa being on that side four is a good counterpoint because, again, he I would consider Frank Zappa an outside artist. He just also has a level of technical ability. The go-to example in our house 
which we always, you know, bring up when discussing certain things like this is Picasso. And the, the phrase that always gets thrown around is you have to know the rules before you break them. And when Picasso was, you know, sort of turning the art world upside down, it wasn't because he was totally ignorant of classical art forms. He knew how to draw or to paint frescoes and to, and to draw photo realistic paintings and things like that. And he chose to use new different forms. I don't get the sense that Yoko Ono's uh, vocal experimentations are based in any like deep understanding of music. It just seems like, well, this is my move. Yeah. And, and honestly, what you just described with um, Picasso, you could say about John Lennon and Paul McCartney, like they, it's like, we got this thing mastered. We could write you pop, perfect pop songs for decades. And then you get this period of their career where it's like, they're going out of their way not to, you know, like they're going out of way, their way to make weirder stuff. And, and these two albums do have something in common. Did you know that? Uh, no, educate me. They, they both feature songs about Angela Davis. Angela, they shot down your man. Angela. Ah, so what's the, what's the exile one that is? Uh, so Sweet Black Angel is actually a, a protest song about Angela Davis. Cool. I've been trying to track down a copy of Angela Davis's autobiography for like years at used bookstores. So if anyone has a copy they can loan me, uh, please email it to me. Uh, I hung out with Ryan the other day and we talked about lending people books. And he said, if I lend to someone a book, I assume it's gone. And if someone lends me a book, I keep it. So don't lend him the book. I didn't say I keep it. No, no I, I treat it. it. I put it in bubble wrap. He said his home is where books go to die. <laughs> That's true. If you lend me that book, uh, if you if you mail me that book, please, you should have no expectations of getting it back. You might, but you shouldn't expect it. Uh, all right. Well, let's. I'm gonna raise my uh, my Modelo Chilada, and you can raise your Keystone that you found in the, <laughs> the very tell back people that. that you found in the very back of your fridge, and uh, let's wash away sometime in New York City. And now <sighs> we're gonna go to XL on Main Street. Great. So we have uh, Rob Mitchum here with us. Rob is a science and music writer whose work has appeared in Pitchfork, Chicago Tribune, Paste, and other publications. And uh, Rob currently works at the University of Chicago. How are you doing today, Rob? I'm doing great, Ryan. Thanks for having me on the show. So uh, it's maybe perfunctory at this point, but I, I do have to ask in uh, 1972, um, given the options of Exile on Main Street or Sometime in New York from John Lennon, which of those two, you know, huge masterpieces <laughs> would be your preference? Well, I think this is one that the Stones win by default almost. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I've never heard Sometime in New York, so. It's uh, a I'm forfeit. It's, yeah, it's definitely exactly. a forfeit. Um, so Rob, you reviewed the, the remastered reissue of Exile on Main Street for Pitchfork back in 2010. And uh, one of the things you said in your review that um, I, I thought was interesting because uh, my co-host on the podcast, Justin, also mentioned this in a recent episode that you, you both kind of describe Exile on Main Street as being a sort of mood or a vibe. What makes Exile so special? Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. Like, it, so Exile is by far my favorite Rolling Stones album and is, I would say, probably in my like top 20 albums of all time by any artist. So, uh, and one thing that I love, one of the qualities I look for in a great album is an album that has a sense of space. Like you feel like you are in a particular location 
with the band during the duration of that album. And they tend to be albums that are recorded outside of traditional studios. So the myth of Exile, of course, is that it was recorded at Keith Richards' French Villa, or the majority of it was recorded at this French Villa while they were uh, fleeing England for tax reasons. Um, but there's other albums in this vein, like Neil Young's Tonight's the Night is a great example, or mm. like the band's self-title album, or something like Guided by Voices' Alien Lanes, which is has that sort of home recording basement vibe. Uh, but I just love albums that it's almost like a live album, even though it's a studio album and where you really feel like you're in a particular location uh, with the band. Uh, and so I think uh, that's one of the special things about Exile for sure. This has got to be the only album in music history that's a bunch of British guys in France writing American roots music. <laughs> like what a strange cocktail. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, maybe that story gets played up a little bit too much. Uh, and, you mm. know, of course, there was a lot of overdubs just done in Los Angeles and things like that. And mm -hmm. getting the stones out of, you know, the traditional studio environment, I think, really suited them well here, even if the band itself was not at its healthiest. So this this album gets compared a lot, at, at least in these conversations, to Sticky Fingers, and they kind of feel like two poles almost, where Sticky Fingers, you know, has four or five songs that could be on, they're, they're on the radio right now somewhere um, in America, versus Exile, which is our, our guest last last week, he also had a similar opinion where he, he agreed that maybe Sticky Fingers is, you know, the Rolling Stones peak, but his favorite was Exile. And my question is, do you think there's a little bit with Exile that it's sort of like a cool guy record? Like, uh, I, I would also put it in the category of this is my favorite Rolling Stones record. It's had that title for a long time. Is there something to be said for the album as sort of having that like street cred where it's not even as I'm naming people who have it as their favorite album, it seems like not the obvious choice. Yeah, it's definitely your stereotypical critics darling record. Uh, probably because it doesn't really have any big hits on it. Like Tumbling Dice is the most well-known mm. song, which in the overall Rolling Stones catalog would probably still be considered a deep cut. Why do you think that is? Like I've always, for as someone who really, really loves Tumbling Dice and even a couple of the other songs on here, they seem as, as good, catchy as any of the other Rolling Stones songs. Why do you think that these songs are not more in the pop music consciousness? I think it's a little bit of the, the same qualities that make it such a great cohesive mood album also make it less uh, compatible with radio play. So all the other Rolling Stones hits are considerably slicker and more professionally recorded. Mm -hmm. uh, and so something like Gimme Shelter or, you know, Satisfaction or things like that uh, fit right into a classic rock radio format where, you know, Tumbling Dice is not a bizarre song <laughs> it's not like uh you know dissonant in any way but it, it it's more ragged around the edges certainly than a lot of the big rolling stones hits so uh i think for that reason maybe it gets knocked down a peg uh for radio programmers that makes sense you describe this as as being a sort of of a place and in almost even of a time is this a drug album to you when you think of like obviously the drug of choice would be heroin um considering keith's heroin addiction but do you think of this as a drug album? Within the genre of drug albums, you have sort of the happy drug albums and the dark drug albums. <laughs> <laughs> so Sgt. Pepper is like, woo, we're doing acid. Everything's great. We're seeing cool Technicolor stuff. Uh, and then the flip, Exile is a great example of the opposite category where 
I mean, there's so many lyrics that are very blatantly referencing heroin. And of course, everybody in this French villa was apparently shooting up on a regular basis at the time. Uh, and that's kind of like, that adds to it, I think, in this case. I mean, it's certain, I, I, I try not to conflate, you know, an artist's troubles with the quality of their music because these are real people. But uh, in certain cases, there is sort of that magic, dramatic arc where you can hear a band that is really struggling with uh, drugs and other things at the time of this recording. And it works really great. Now, if they had stayed in that zone, I think they probably wouldn't still be around today. Uh, but uh, Exile has this sort of dramatic narrative sweep that really feels like uh, sort of a descent into a bender and whether that's heroin or alcohol or mm. whatever substance of choice, sort of the first three sides of the records really feel like you're just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the party to where it's not fun anymore. Oh, and yeah. then it has this really beautiful, I think, uplifting fourth side, which is sort of the sort of the hangover, but also a redemptive arc, uh, a, a way out of this darkness that you've experienced for the first three quarters of the record. In your piece on, on this, you described Keith's singing as thrillingly imperfect harmonies, which I thought was such a great uh, summation of Keith's singing. Where are you at with Keith singing, both on this album and just in general on this kind of Rolling Stones run? Yeah, well, one of the unique things about Exile and something that I really love about it is that Keith is essentially a co-lead vocalist on the record. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Keith had a more uh, of the like uh, driving responsibilities for this record, like mm -hmm. a lot of the songwriting and a lot of the singing and a lot of the song construction more than a typical Rolling Stones record. Uh, and there, there's songs where it sounds like him and Mick are competing to be the lead vocalist as they're recording. There's a lot of classic rock bands that are like this, where I really love the secondary vocalist, or in some mm -hmm. cases, like the tertiary vocalist. So in the Beatles, of course, it'd, it'd be George. Like, mm -hmm. I love hearing the, you know, one or two George songs on a Beatles record, because it's such a nice contrast. Or, uh, you know, Pete Townsend, who was obviously writing all the Who material, but would sing lead on, or a bridge or something, a, a couple times on a Who record. Uh, so in this case, it's, you know, Keith's time to shine like that. And I don't know, I, I don't listen to Keith's solo records very much. And I don't know that I would want to hear just Keith as the lead vocalist of the Stones, but I like that the dynamic here where they're sort of competing and he's a lot more forward vocally than he would typically be on a yeah, Stones record. I like that, this sort of change of pace guy. Um, how, how do you rate the album cover for this one? I like it. I think it is a great depiction of how seedy the album sounds. Like it just lines up perfectly. Mm -hmm. uh, I like the sort of circus freak show aesthetic and how it's very messy, sort of slapped together like a collage instead of this, you know, the sort of iconic artsy covers of, you know, Sticky Fingers or some girls or things like that, the sort of pop art covers. Do you, when you're listening to this album, like you, you, when you put it on, it's one of your top 20 albums, you said, are you listening to the bonus tracks? Where are you at with the, the extra material that was released on this? I know you talked in your article a little bit about how Mick, uh, in late 2000s, Mick is clearly overdubbing some of the vocals on these bonus tracks, but how do you feel about that material? Yeah, I, I had forgotten about them entirely until you uh, pointed <laughs> me back to my review. And I was like, oh, yeah, there were all these like extra tracks. So I do not 
I, I'm pretty sure I stop, you know, the Spotify yeah. stream every time before it gets to those. I mean, they just, they're, they're a curiosity that is interesting to hear, but they just sound so out of place with the original album. Yeah. That that's, I, they don't I, seem like they're of a piece with it, like at all. I don't know why I had a conception going into this that it was like, oh, there's a lot of good, I'm the type of person that loves that sort of stuff when you get like a really good alternate take or just like some raw demo stuff that never made it to the album. And I, I had an impression that this album had a lot of that good stuff. And I felt the same way. I was sort of like, well, I'll never listen to that again. Yeah, I mean, it's almost a miracle that they came out of this process with a double album's worth <laughs> of material because it sounds like it was so haphazardly recorded. Um, but yeah, I think... There's probably a bunch of like aimless jams from, you know, the the basement of this French villa uh, out there, but I have a feeling Mick Jagger would never allow them to be released. I mean, <laughs> it's always fascinated me how much he hates this album and how yeah. the Stones today really play it down, despite the fact that it is sort of their critics darling. Uh, I, I think a lot of bands would have leaned into it and done tours where they play the entirety of Exile on Main Street. But uh, mm. as far as I know of Rolling Stone set lists in this sort of stadium era, it's it's a rarity to get, you know, even Tumbling Dice or one of the, the, the more well-known songs here. Yeah, that's an interesting angle to look at this Stone stuff through and sort of they've been touring so long, sort of what made it through the filter. And we've had a lot of different songs in this podcast where it's sort of, you know, personal favorites, this or that. And you're like, well... I love the song, but it's not on 40 licks, you know, or it's not getting played. I think I, I read that they played Sweet Black Angel live once. I, I could definitely see a world in which a band came together and like, cool, this is the exile tour. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, you know, when Springsteen took the river out, like the river mm. isn't packed full of hits and he would play the entire double album every night. And you could see the Stones doing that, but they're much happier leaning into the, the greatest hits. Rob, you want to tell us about the 36 from the Vault podcast? Yeah, so uh, myself and music writer Stephen Hyden, uh, we do a Grateful Dead podcast where we are working through their live release series called Dick's Picks uh, that was named for their tape archivist, Dick Latvala. Uh, it started in the 90s and they put out 36 volumes of uh, live dead shows from their vaults. So we are working through them one by one, one episode per volume and talking about the show, talking about what else was going on in the music world uh, on the date of that show, uh, and just, you know, sort of working our way through the history of the dead, who are just an endlessly fascinating band uh, to talk about. Awesome. And where can people find you and uh, your various works? Yeah, so uh, best place is on Twitter at Rob Mitchum, uh, R-O-B-M-I-T-C-H-U-M. And uh, from there, you can follow whatever I do. Cool. Awesome. This was fun. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I've got a feeling, a feeling deep inside. You know, I don't know that I can sum it up better other than what you said last week, which said it's a mood and it's a vibe. And I, I, I just so happen to have a set of uh, heroin utensils right here. And I'm going to go ahead and shoot up real quick to get the full exile on Main Street experience. So give me a minute. Hold on. <laughs> You, you were embarrassed for me to say that you were drinking a Keystone Light and now you're uh, getting out your heroin utensils. Um, yeah, I, I would be less embarrassed to admit to using heroin than drinking Keystone Light that I found in the back of my fridge. <laughs> um, yeah, it is a mood and a vibe. You know, what it, you know what it feels like to me? It feels like 
Here, here's actually I'll give my I'll give my like my one thing I'll say bad about this album, which is not a bad thing about the album, but it's 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 a commentary on that mood and vibe that you described. And I, and it's a little weird to me that it is because like I don't know what time of year they recorded this in France, and it's got a lot of kind of dark stuff going on with it. But to me, this album is a summertime. Like if I have people at my like home and we're outside and you're like drinking and barbecuing or hanging out somewhere this is an album that you can just press play on and let it play for its like hour or so however long it is that's when this album feels its best to me you know like loud through a sound mm. system and i'm around people and it's it, because it's not one of those albums that you need to hang on every song or lyric the way like let it let it bleed and beggar's banquet feel that way and in its own way Sticky Fingers does two, and and really what those are, I'm basically saying is those are nine or 10 song albums. But like, we live on Orcas Island, both of us. And this is like the period of winter on Orcas Island where it's like the cool part of winter's done. And now it's just gonna kind of suck for a couple months. And like, <laughs> it and, and so it was like, I listened to it. It was like, God, I love this album. This album's so cool. But it also was like, it, I, I, I was very aware of it not being the perfect moment for the album, you know? That's an interesting point. And I'll, I'll add to that in my sort of, I agree. It's a great, like people are over, put it on, just like, let it run. You don't need to hang on every song. Um, if I'm just listening to it, which does happen from time to time, and I'm just putting it on for my enjoyment, there's like a 50% chance I'm starting at tumbling dice and going from there. Really? I love those first two songs. just i i like the run from tumbling dice to sweet virginia torn and frayed sweet black like the end tumbling dice through side two is really like the sweet spot for me and something about i like those first four songs but i just i start to get that heroin junkie itch where i'm like i want i gotta get to tumbling dice the the way i feel about this album is it's like I said something early on in this series or a couple of years ago about like, oh, it's like just these kind of riffs and everything like that. And I think you said like, oh, I think it's a little less than you might be thinking with that. And I think the better term I should have been using is not riffs. I should have been using the term licks, which I don't know necessarily. Mm. And I mean, they made an album called 40 Licks and I don't, I don't know the technical things behind this, but like you listen to songs like Shake Your Hips, even Sweet Black Angel, Turd on the Run, Ventilator Blues, I Just Want to See His Face, Stop Breaking Down. These feel just like a little noodle that they just loop and just do what you want over them. And they're they're just kind of there. I'm not trying to be any more than they are. They're just kind of going in circles and they kind of almost some of them i mean sweet black angel really feels like a song but some of them don't even feel like you would even like calling it a song doesn't even feel they feel like an interlude yeah and that's where i would probably go if i wanted to make a strong case for sticky fingers over this album is that um for all the positives uh and, and laudits that we can place on exile the song craft is not at its strongest and what you're saying like what it makes me think of is it makes me imagine someone strung out on heroin or other drugs. And like, if you've ever, if you've ever done drugs, Justin, and you played music, that's kind of what you do. You just get stuck in a lick and you're just like, this sounds good. Let me play it over. And you're not, you're not crafting a bridge. 
you're not like crafting a triumphant chorus obviously the album works but i think that is something that you could critique this album of is like the song craft is not to me uh you know when people talk about exile they rarely talk about like i love this song i love that song which there are songs in here i love but they're always talking about the whole package yeah right like all of that together and so why is that because the songs are a little bit more rambly let's say yeah i wouldn't i mean i i agree with that and i but i still wouldn't take the songs off you like you're the guest you spoke to gave the album a 10 on on pitchfork when reviewing it and i i like i wouldn't change it spent a lot of time like going in really hard on the white album which is the beatles version of a blown out double album and that the beatles version of doing that is like the highest highs imaginable in part just because you're getting so many songs and they're at their peak but also some of the lowest lows it's like i have we had no problem turning the white album into a 10 or 13 song album as an exercise i this one nothing offends me nothing repulses me nothing it all really does feel like it hangs together i like all of it even though some of those things like i i consider sweet virginia basically one of maybe possibly my favorite rolling stone song that surround it the things that come before it and come after it set up sweet virginia to be as good as good as it is in this context yeah i agree with that and i'm not i'm not saying i would i would probably rate i would still rate this album a 10 there's nothing that i would change i would just say if i was going to like point out some of its flaws that's probably the direction i go and the thing about i just the run from tumbling dice through the second side of the album through loving cup that's just one of my favorite, you know, of all the Rolling Stones albums that we've listened to, that's you put five, any five of their songs in a row on any of those albums. And that's going to be one of my favorite runs. So part of it is just, again, an impatience thing on my part. And sometimes sort of being in the mood of like, give me straight, let me mainline straight to the good stuff. I'm not in the mood for this other um, so, sort of uh, mood pieces. song let it loose is that a song in your mind when you hear that song is it the end of the night and you're like leaving a party and driving home or is it like 6 a.m in the morning and you're like waking up hungover give me my options again Either it's the end of the night and like the party's over or it's the the early, early next morning and you're like waking up being like, what the fuck did I do last night? I'm trying to make a movie in my mind and I think it's the end of night one. Okay. Yeah, I don't know why it's just like, I feel like it could be either of those and it's sort of, 
kicks off the the triumphant side four, the sort of redemptive arc on side four. with the rolling stones because they've been touring for 40 years or whatever gets filtered through their like live performances and this is just not an album with a bunch of songs that they're like playing in concert yeah what are they playing in concert tumbling dice i imagine they play happy yeah probably those two songs i mean i don't i've i've you though you're the one who saw them uh in san francisco in wakavi cove um <laughs> Probably happy. Happy is probably the one that they give Keith, right? To like, okay, Keith, your turn to sing. Although maybe not. I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. The idea that most of the band is down in um, the south of France, recording in this kind of setting like kind of helmed by Keith Richards and then um Mick is up in Paris like I, I I've read enough to know that that's what they're doing and that he's not really involved much in those sessions and he's just up in Paris but like what's he up in Paris doing <laughs> is what is like fascinating to me I mean they're at their peak fame so maybe he's doing just what famous person stuff but he's up there with his wife which by the way I'll drop a little fact on you mm. you know my what's my wife's name I knew where this is going immediately. Uh, Bianca. And then what's what was his wife's name? Uh, Bianca. And did you know my wife, Ecuadorian, a Latin American woman, uh, my wife was named after her. I don't think I was totally aware of how much of like a post Mick Jagger, like his like influence she had. She had a she had kind of decades mm -hmm. of, of stuff that she did kind of cool stuff too. Mm -hmm. um, kind of cool stuff. What are you doing, man? <laughs> <laughs> this stuff's like pretty cool like she's like some kind of un ambassador or something like that it's like yeah it's pretty cool i mean i don't know <laughs> you know what to do i'm, I'm uh, all i'm doing on here is like critiquing and praising and insulting and and <laughs> things you know like i'm losing i'm losing my center of gravity when it comes to uh people's accolades <laughs> quote though that jumped out to me about when they separated was quote my marriage ended on my wedding day <laughs> oof ouch so there you go there's bianca jagger you know the the story of like oh keith is down here and what's mick do i mean i'm sure he was having fun in paris i don't know a famous rich person i'm sure there's lots of stuff to do in paris i feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't make make mention or, or shout out like this album is not the story of like Keith noodling in a basement and then like Mick coming in and singing over those songs. There is a lot of super talented musicians that contributed to this song. And I mean, some of them are Rolling Stones regulars, but Nicky Hopkins, Bobby Keys playing saxophone, Jimmy Miller, their producer, who's always doing some kind of cool percussion thing on everything. 
uh billy preston of course we have to mention again um and who will never go <laughs> never get mentioned again for uh for legal reasons on this podcast there's just there's a lot of contributions outside of the rolling stones that i i feel like need to get recognized um because those those things really do make this album and they they're what take it from just being keith noodling on some licks to being a, a full uh, exile on main street the ride yeah i think that's a good that's an important addition because it's easy when you have like like all the kind of like cool crazy stories about an album getting made you can easily lose it in like dude they were in a basement and they just stayed up all night and they just kind of captured the random stuff that he did and then mick went to la it's like that that betrays what this album actually is which is a fully produced rock album in tons of spots with a bunch of people playing on it. It has the big horn sections. It has the like ripping lead guitars. It has all that stuff. Yeah. And don't go no further than sometime in New York to see how just having a big band with like a, a brass section does not generate an album like exile on main street. Yeah. And which, also- which actually like goes to your point you made earlier about like the disjointed nature, nature of how it was made with like, not all members in the same place at the same time and the stuff that one band member leading one part and one band member like stepping in on another part there's a it just seems like such an easy scenario for that to go horribly like how did they make such a how did they make an 18 song thing that feels like one of the most like cohesive beautifully connected things like it, it just like and then meanwhile john lennon a solo artist with his act with his straight up with his wife and a hand-picked band made a complete mess of an album yeah well and the other factor is that too and that the one of the leading creative voices in this band being Mick Jagger was not on board for this stuff he was not happy with the direction that this album went and you know the Rolling Stones would soon change direction fairly drastically and so that's also another factor of like sort of how did this get made is it was also made almost in spite of the fact that Mick Jagger was not trying to make this album or wasn't interested in making this album. Yeah. It's like the last, like this, this little, this album is the the fourth one in like the Rolling Stones, like indisputable kind of run. This is the last one where it's just here we are British rock band playing rootsy old rock and blues music. Like they, it goes, it kind of splinters out in different directions from this point forward. And, and eventually you got Mick Jagger, like dancing with David Bowie to like synthesizers. Yeah. And I think that was the direction that Mick was wanting to go this whole time. And so it's almost, it feels like maybe there's a world, there's a universe in which we only got three like classic albums in a row because whatever it is, you know, I certainly can under, like if the Rolling Stones made this album, like four more of these albums, we probably would also be like, OK, enough with the American sure. rootsy music. But given where they went and the like musical influences that came to dominate that band, uh, I'm just glad that they didn't listen to Mick because <laughs> I don't think whatever he thought of like taking risks or going in new directions it that ultimately meant just like watering stuff down and they would have been better off just being a a blues cover band this this does seem like a perfect like okay if this is the last one of those things you're gonna do get all the songs out i don't know if that had anything to do with like how it worked i know some of these are sticky finger sessions and and but like thank god they made it 
And I, yeah. I, I, they, throughout the rest of the seventies, like there's it's, it's peaks and valleys, but there's some cool stuff. That's, that's different. There, there. is just like the Beatles. I mean, they're just, they're too damn good. They're too good at making songs for there not to be a lot to find and discover there. So this is certainly not us at the end of this album shoveling dirt on the Rolling Stones grave. There's, there's plenty more to discover there. Um, but it certainly does represent the end of a chapter and of a period. Yeah. And so people know when we get to our 74 episode, which like rounds out the kind of decade we're looking at of these two bands, that episode also looks all the way up to now. It's like 74 and beyond. So all that Rolling Stone stuff, all that Beatles stuff, um, which is significantly less and more disjointed, but uh, we're going to think about that stuff. As Shout out to our boy, Glenn Johns who engineered this record after getting kicked off uh, Let It Be in favor of Phil Spector. Great job, Glenn Johns. Excellent Man. record. They, they didn't just like buy a bunch of French recording equipment, but apparently the Rolling Stones invented something or built something that was a mobile recording van. Yeah. Um, and it was like a van with all of the equipment that they needed to record albums. And that was what they brought to the villa in the south of France and that that van was also loaned out and used to other groups and stuff. And so there's actually like a whole history of that van and the different albums and things that uh, it's it recorded. So it was used by The Who, Dire Straits, Deep Purple, Lou Reed, Bob Marley, Fleetwood Mac, Bad Company. Um, so that's a, wow. that's a hell of a track record. Led Zeppelin. Yeah, Rolling Stones, like Pioneers and Trailblazers once again. Glenn Johns was apparently instrumental in the creation of that unit. His, his record speaks for itself. Well, you know what is he, he really gets the last laugh in this one because this uh, Lennon Yoko one is produced by Lennon, Ono and Phil Spector. So, yeah. So I think we can both agree that sometime in New York won this year. <laughs> oh my God. What's what's really funny to think about is like, all right. So we we're, none of us are trying to say sometime in New York city is a good album. It's a, it's not a good album and, and that's not a new thought. But the level of passion last week about the song Imagine is like 500 times higher than what we're saying about this like indisputably bad uh, John Lennon, Yoko, Yoko Ono album. Like Imagine is actually a better song than most of what's on here, but no one's taking these trying to raise them up for you. And so, uh, you know, Imagine's a public figure and it's going to get treated accordingly. I, I did read a quote from someone uh, who was saying that a lot of the material on sometime in New York would be more fit for the girl group, the shags. I don't know if you've ever listened to the shags, um, but that's a pretty big insult. Okay. No, I haven't. Anyone who hasn't listened to the shags, including you, Justin should go listen to it. Speaking of outsider artists, probably maybe the greatest example in rock and roll history. Um, the shags were a group of teenage girls whose father saw the success of like other girl groups in the 60s and said, okay, you guys are going to form a pop group and you're going to form a band. 
They had um, very little to no musical talent, no musical connections whatsoever. They recorded this album and it is so weird. I mean, it's awful. Their singing is bad. Their uh, guitars and instruments are like definitely out of tune at times. The, and the drummer cannot keep a consistent beat in a song. But they have that thing where because they don't have the musical background or knowledge, some of the stuff they do is actually really interesting. And it's really, it has a unique thing about it i can't explain it i would just you know i it's weird to recommend an album that's bad but it's it's definitely in the category of so bad it's good or so bad that it's interesting it's interesting in the way that it's bad or sometime in new york is so bad it's just forgettable and you just like flush it down the toilet i I like i get exactly what you're saying and i'm sure that it's because they're coming at it from some direction that there are some people, there are thousands to maybe even millions of people who probably have that same like uh, galaxy brain thought approach to Yoko Ono, you know, that we see as like, that we see as like just annoying, but you can see something more in it, you know? And I, and I thought I felt that way. And actually some of the other stuff that I, that I have heard with Yoko Ono on it, and she's on some of those previous albums, there, there's something that it adds that I do like, but every impulse of John Lennon and Yoko Ono on this album is like its worst version of itself with a horrible uh, like saxophone knockoff Saturday Night Live cover band. But you know what also came out this year? It actually came out last year in the UK. No, no, it, it was released in 72 in both places. Is uh, um, Happy Christmas, War is Over. Lennon, Lennon and Ono put that out. And honestly, I'm putting that on the scale of Christmas songs, but that's a good one. That's way better than anything on Sometime in New York City. All right. You can only listen to one song for the rest of your life. Uh, any time of year, not just Christmas time. Would you rather listen to Merry Christmas, War is Over or simply having a wonderful Christmas time? Merry Christmas, War is Over. Jesus Christ. <laughs> I was expect any other Christmas song. Like there's like five I know by name, but I was like, simply, ha- I don't know if I've ever heard that. And then immediately got the, uh, it-, it played in my head and I wanted to die. <laughs> I feel that way, the way about that song, kind of like how you do about Imagine. and. It's another in a long line of John Lennon's pithy political ramblings that like extremely oversimplify complex situations. And then John Lennon gets to just dust his hand off and be like, well, I did it. Yeah. I, and now it's not my problem anymore. I told you guys just like want it bad enough and war will be over. And as soon as you start wanting it, it that'll happen. I was reading some article about like Adam Curtis put out this new documentary. I can't remember what it's called, but it was talking about like, how in in like this stage of society we've replaced they were talking about how tupac's mom who wanted to make a difference in the world went into like politics and went into like like basically direct social change like the things need to change and i'm going to get in and like like crank the the gears of power and try to change them in that way that's what i'm going to do and that we've converted it's it's a lot of like it was really a critique of like 
like the democratic party and like liberalism really but it was like we've we've turned the kind of artists into heroes in the last oh, yeah. like 30 40 years and so yes. that the impulse of her son is to okay the world needs to change i'm gonna go do that and like make a cultural impact on the world and it's like you say a bunch of interesting things there's a lot there to chew on and think about but while we're all there like nodding our head to it and thinking about it nothing's actually changing and that it's detrimental to society fascinating thing to think about yeah that's a really interesting way of looking at it and i would even go so far on this podcast to say like as an artist i think the political message and ideas that tupac shakur were putting out into the mainstream are far more interesting and complex than war is over if you want it a hundred percent um that song the way i say it's better than all these other ones like i said I mean, it's Christmas put, songs. Like, that's you, a little Yeah, more. if you put it on a scale with the Beatles, it ain't even coming close. If you put it on a scale of other songs I hear at Christmas time, it's flying up the charts. I just, it's hard for me not to look at this era of leftist political, and, you know, I'm very much a, a liberal person who should be he- being spoken to by these songs. It's hard for me not to draw a direct line towards the failure of this like post sixties generation to like enact any sort of meaningful change with the like conservative Reagan era that would, you know, take over the entire eighties as like, here, here's the direct result of your ideological failure. Yeah. Which is why Paul McCartney had the right move. Like just go make some cute little tunes in your house with your wife and um, like acclimate to the moment and come out with your arena band in the mid seventies. <laughs> All right. Well, this was fun. Uh, where are we going next week? I think next week is kind of nuts. So I know we have Goat's Head Soup to look forward to Rolling Stones 1973 release. Exactly. I got the I got the Beatles ones in front of me. If, if okay, I don't. So Wings put out Red Rose Speedway. Never heard of it. But Wings also put out Band on the Run. Very much heard of it and heard it. Um, you heard of that one? Yeah. Uh, so if, wings if I'm not band. mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the album Ringo is generally considered his best album, right? The first two albums were essentially cover albums, even if one was written by some guy he collaborated with. This is probably his first time we're going to hear Ringo just make a Ringo album, like the Ringo who played in the Beatles. Those mm. other ones didn't feel even remotely connected to the Beatles to me. And I know this won't feel like it's connected to the Beatles, but it just feels like. Like, you know, Ringo's got some good stuff in there. So I'm excited. And then John put out Mind Games, which possibly my family had on vinyl. That one, I, I, I've heard that one, but I not extensively. And George put out Living in the Material World. That Yeah, and I also think that one is pretty beloved by George fans. So a lot of the stuff's going to be new to me. So I'm looking forward, looking forward to it a lot more than sometime in New York. Although uh, I'm certainly not complaining about getting some bonus listening time with Exile on Main Street. I'm representing Goat's Head Soup. I love Goat's Head Soup. Um, it's imperfect, but but perfect in that way. Um, okay, so that's good. As a sign off, before we like do like the little like housekeeping stuff, you want to hear the credits on um, Sometime in New York City for the people who played on it? Please. Okay. That band was called Elephant's Memory. So that all the saxophone stuff, the band they played with recording that is Elephant's Memory. And then on the live jam... All the artists who played on that went with pseudonyms, okay? Derek Clapto, Billini and Donnie, don't know them, Jim Boredom, George Harrison, 
Sticky Topkins, Robbie Knees, Keith Spoon, Billy Prestud, Rouse Dorman, and Dallas White. Those are some weak pseudonyms. They're man. awful, awful pseudonyms. <laughs> perfectly suited for that album. Although now that you're like reading, I mean, that's from the live jam, which is certainly not like that's not the whole album. That's that's a, a kind of different different sort of section. You know, like Eric Clapton was not playing in the the first two sides of this album, but it does like a lot of these guys are the people we name dropped earlier on uh sticky or on exile on main street i mean ricky hopkins bobby keys uh billy preston those guys are all on exile bobby keys you mean robbie knees excuse me robbie knees i don't Derek Derek clapto and george harris song they deserve each other (laughs) um all right so um i'm justin this is ryan we're gonna see you in email us at beatles versus stone pod Doc at gmail.com. Um, we do read all of those, and we're gonna see you in 1973 with all those albums we just mentioned. Well, baby, 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 you're